welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode of Contractor Evolution from Breakthrough Academy. In this episode, Benji talks with Brooke Finley, managing partner of Whistler Immigration, about the immigration process and how her firm connects business owners in construction and trades with the international talent and human capital they desperately need. Welcome back to Contractor Evolution. Our guest on the show today is Brooke Finley, managing partner of Whistler Immigration. Brooke is an entrepreneur and a regulated Canadian immigration consultant. She and her team of six help over 200 clients a year navigate the immigration process. In other words, her firm connects business owners in construction and trades with the international talent and human capital that they so desperately need. Think about it. You as an entrepreneur can't find the people you need at home. The next logical step is to look further abroad, and that is Brooks Power Zone. So if overcoming the labor shortage and growing your business is something that you care about, immigration and foreign worker programs are, thing, are things that you need to look at, and the sooner the better. I actually had no idea until this conversation, but our current demographic modeling is showing pretty clearly that by early 2030, because of our death rate versus our birth rate, our population growth will grind to a halt and large-scale immigration policy is one of the ways we're going to fix that problem. And as she says very eloquently in this episode, this is quickly becoming not optional for individual business owners as well as the economy as a whole. Uh, when done really well, recruiting and integrating foreign workers into your business and community is a win-win. And it's something that you, the evolving contractor, need to have on your radar. I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Brooke. Uh, she's super articulate. She's very well informed. Really quick caveat before we dive in. Brooke's firm serves all of Canada except for Quebec. So if that sounds like you and this is an avenue you want to pursue, her contact information is going to be in the in the description of this episode. For our many American listeners, this conversation, the trends we discuss, definitely still super relevant, so keep listening. But if you want to pursue this avenue, we would advise you find a more local immigration consultant. You're watching Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Brooke, thank you so much for carving out some time uh, to do this with us. I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive in with you. Thanks, Benji. I'm uh, grateful to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. So, Brooke, let's start with this. Um, you and I were kind of talking about this offline. There is uh, a pretty real and palpable and widening gap between the demand on 
uh, trades businesses and their ability to fulfill that demand. And most of the choke point, if you will, is is a lot, a lot of it we can point to like team building. Business owners in trades and construction are seemingly unable to find enough people to fill the businesses to keep up with things. Um, uh, and, and I'm wondering if just w we can kind of start there with, a, this is a very broad question, but how did we get here? There's obviously some combination of events, trends over the last you know number of years that has that has brought us to this point where where uh, business owners everywhere are really feeling the feeling the pinch. Do you ha do you have any thoughts around how we got here? Absolutely. Um, so I mean, we deal with this day in and day out. Um, a, a large portion of what we do is working with businesses that are unable to staff their organizations, including trades businesses, but not exclusively. So yeah, we, we have a bit of a finger on the pulse of why this is happening. And, you know, generally speaking, um, if you look at population growth in Canada, it's, it's not growing at the same rate that it used to grow, um, at least nationally. So, uh, you know, we, in 1971, we were looking at a worker retiree ratio of seven to one, whereas by 2035, we're looking at two to one, right? So we're getting this um, phenomenon where we're just, there's more people retiring than there are people, you know, in the pipeline Starting um, the careers. to fill those positions. Um, so that's just generally speaking where, why we're facing labor shortages across the country. And, and that's really industry agnostic. Um, it's not just a trades thing. Like that's what you're saying. Yeah. This is, this is across all sectors, all industries. This is, this is um, a much bigger picture trend and problem than just contractors. Exactly. Um, you know, and there are industries that are harder hit by this, what's occurring in terms of, um, you know, the, the population growth um, and, uh, you know, the availability of workers to fill the spaces of those who are retiring. Trades, I would say, based on, on my knowledge and experience, is one of those industries that is harder hit, um, you know, and, and, and something more specific to, to that is, um, there's an RBC r report recently, I think it was actually last year that it was published, um, speaking to what specifically was causing um, shortages, labor shortages in, in trades. And you've got things like stigma attached to um, trades occupations being lower paying and having less prestige um, and potentially not having earning potentials of some other occupations. So, um, you know, those are some factors that, from my knowledge and mm -hmm. research, it specifically impact trades on top of the more general, you know, our population just simply isn't growing at the rate um, that people are retiring and dying. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a very good point that this is harder hit and the y y what you're talking about is a perception. I don't think that that's actually true uh, about people who have careers in trades. If you talk to any of our members, you talk to their employees, they're doing pretty well. They're doing a lot better. We talked to this in other episodes. They're doing a lot better than a lot of people who went the, I'm going to go get an undergrad, then I'm going to get a master's, then I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. If you sort of look at the trajectories of two individuals who took those two routes in life, 
I'm going to make the case that a lot of our members are doing a lot better than the people that went the other direction, which is, again, perceived as being maybe more profitable or a better route to take. But nonetheless, that's that's the perception. Those are the ideas that are floating around the minds of young yeah. people who may enter the trades. And kind of what we're saying is they're, they're not at the pace that they would need to to keep up. Um, just to piggyback on your comments about this being a, you know, economy-wide thing, but trades being harder hit. Um, I did a, I did a talk on this last month um, at a conference that we, that I was at, I was at in, in Kabul with one of our, um, one of our software partners. And uh, the talk was called how to hire in a talent shortage. And the, a, a good chunk of it was just um, explaining how, how we got here. So I, I dug some notes up from that to refresh my memory couple of really important factors here that I think you listeners need to be aware of is this sort of like pinch point, uh, this personnel issue in your business is not just like, this didn't just erupt in the last year. This isn't just a COVID thing. Like this goes back quite a long way. A um, couple things not a lot of people realize or maybe even remember is back in 2008 when we had sort of a financial crisis, uh, new starts in construction dropped off like they took a nosedive by about 70% all over North America. What that meant is 1.5 million people left their construction careers to either retire, go find work elsewhere, or, or sit on their ass and collect the eye. But they didn't, they didn't stay on the job site that they were doing before. Um, now, if you look at, I, there's a really interesting graph that I, that I pulled up um, that shows how that you know how those 1.5 million jobs did eventually get regained over the 10 years between about 2010 and 2020 like you can see people slowly back slowly entering back into the space but then covid happens we lose another million people like that it should be said we were deemed essential early and about 80 percent of those 1 million that left have come back but it's just important i think for listeners to realize like these are big, big historical events that took place. This goes back a long time. And if you're feeling like, man, this feels a lot harder than it used to, there's some pretty strong, you know, economic data to say it is. That's not just a feeling. Like we can back that up with, with science. Um, couple other smaller pieces I, I just need to mention. Um, we can see, you mentioned the aging workforce. Uh, that, that is something that's happening. Young people aren't coming in as fast as old people are leaving. The other one that's uh, really unfortunate is there's a, there's been a big drop off in like proper shop classes in our public education system. So woodworking, um, working in an automotive or mechanic class, like these more hands-on type modules, um, or educations that we're able to give our young people have been, you know, defunded or, or they're not as common as they used to. And so there's not a, there isn't this cohort of young people that sort of find um, find their passion through that. And so I think that's, um, you know, from my perspective, this isn't a political podcast, but that was maybe not a good policy um, over the last little bit. So that, that's a part of it. Final thing I'll say is there's been $9 trillion of stimulus pumped into the economy over the last 10 years, or sorry, two years, just in the U.S. alone. I don't, I don't know what the number is in Canada, but it's, it's, it's a big one as well. So uh, you have a sort of a decreasing talent supply and increasing talent demand through this stimulus. Um, construction and trades are booming, and, and, and a lot of people are definitely feeling it. So just if you're listening to this, <laughs> feeling like, man, I... I 
back when I started my business, it wasn't this hard. You're right, it wasn't. It has gotten harder. It has gotten harder, and you do need to evolve. So, Brooke, um, obviously, for for our listeners, like there's still a problem here that needs to be solved. Um, how viable a tool is immigration when it when when a, an entrepreneur is thinking about building a team to keep up with demand? Yeah, actually, um, when I was going through your questions, how viable of a tool um, is it? In my mind, it's it's not a question of whether or not immigration is a viable tool. It's 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 becoming essential. It has to, to happen. Yeah. If you look at, again, on a broader scale, if you look at the federal government of Canada's immigration targets over the next three years or from 2021 to 2023, they're higher than they they have been in decades. The reason being we've got our population growth isn't occurring naturally in Canada and needs to be supplemented through attracting uh, individuals from other countries um you know by the early 2030s our population growth will rely entirely on immigration so you know it's not a question of whether or not this is a viable tool it it's it's essential to be thinking about this when you just look at the trends in population growth um and and you know the availability like you were saying the availability of talent to staff our organizations and that's not that's generally speaking and not specific to trades i mean but then you if you look specific to trades over 700,000 skilled tradespeople are expected to retire by 2028 mm-hmm. and my research showed that a gap of 60,000 registered, there will be a gap of 60,000 registered apprentices by 2025. Can we so, go back up a second? To it's not something. a question of if. <laughs> it's, it's a matter of we, we must. Um, yeah. Can we back up to something you said a second ago? Like you said 2030 and beyond, all of Canada's population growth is going to be as a result of growth. immigration. So we're, we're literally yeah. not That's even. gross. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it. Yeah, growth. So we're our, uh, what are we at? 37, 38 million people right now in Canada. That's going to stall out somewhere and to get to 42 or to 45 or with whatever the number is, that's, that's all going to be immigration based on the yep. modeling right now. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Based on the government's modeling, based on third party modeling. Yeah. So um, if you were a smart business owner, this is something you would get literate on early is what we're saying, because this is the way it is all going. Yeah. Okay. Um, for someone that is unfamiliar with the process, just like in broad strokes, Brooke, I, I know a lot of this stuff is, is very detailed. There's obviously a ton of legal underpinnings for all this. So um, we don't need to get crazy stuck in the weeds on, on, on certain details within it. But just, yeah, generally speaking, what does the process look like if a business owner wanted to use immigration to bring on people for their team? Mm-hmm. So I'll take it really high level because like you said, we don't want to get stuck in the weeds. But just for some perspective in Canada alone, there are over 50 different ways that somebody could get a work permit. Um so uh, generally speaking, if I'm a business owner in Canada and I want to hire someone from outside of Canada to work in my organization, I first need to make an application to get authorization to hire 
someone from outside of Canada. And essentially the, the premise behind that is to ensure that Canadian business owners and organizations are giving sort of the first right of refusal to that job to Canadians or permanent residents. Mm -hmm. So there's a recruitment aspect involved um, and a necessity to demonstrate that there's a lack of uh, either people just in general or um, the people with the skill and talent to fill the role. Um, So that application is made by the employer, the organization in Canada. The business owner needs to prove, hey, government, I have tried hiring drywallers. I have tried hiring carpenters. I have tried hiring landscape technicians. I, they're not here. I need to immigrate. You need, you need to make the case. You need to prove that that's your only option. That's what you mean when you say give first right of refusal to Canadians. Exactly. Yeah. Demonstrating that there's a skills and labor shortage in Canada and that the employer has exhausted their options to hire from the national labor pool. Um, which in our experience working with organizations and trades is really not, not complex because there's a real, um, genuine shortage in, in these occupations. So that's the first step is the employer getting permission to hire somebody from outside of Canada. The next step is for that individual who is outside of Canada, the employee to make an application to the government of Canada for authorization to work in Canada. So both the employer and the employee independently seek authorization to hire, or sorry, to, to one, hire a foreign worker and two, work in Canada. Um, that second application, the employee's application, hinges on the employer's application being successful. So they are interlinked, but separate processes. Um, And then once the employee is approved to come and work in Canada, then there's the process of them arriving, settling, you know, integrating into the organization and the community that they're living in. And then longer term, um, you know, processes to support that person, that employee remain in Canada beyond the duration of their their work permit, if, if you so choose. Is that generally speaking what they want to do? Um, the 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 foreign worker that has come in is that is that generally what they want to do is stay longer term or are they here for a year to check out Canada and then go back? Generally speaking, in my experience and some of the the, the research that I've done, someone coming through this process that I've just described, where the employer's gone and and to get authorization to hire this person person in particular, mm-hmm. they're coming and, and, and they have longer term goals than say one or two years. Right. Um, they're, they're often more mature, a little bit older. Um, whereas the people that come to Canada, perhaps without that longer term vision, um, come through a different program that I didn't describe yeah. that doesn't require an employer. Um, and is more of just like a gap year Got type it. person. Got it. But they that, might come with a, hey, I'm coming for a year to ski and uh, travel totally. and that's it. Well, that, that, and so, so there is that option out there available too. We're not actually really talking about that today. We're talking more about like the, the people that want to come here. They want to stay here. And for most of our listeners, that's what they would be looking for a lot of the time as well. They're looking for people to, to, to build a team with, and it's a longer-term vision that they're trying to execute. Uh, you know, sure, an extra body here there to get through the busy season in the summer certainly helps, but if I 
I think I know our listeners pretty well. Like, they're like, no, I want, I want like a, I want a foreman that's going to be here for five years because we got a lot of stuff coming down the pipe, or I want a project manager who I can build into because you know. So it's it's that is definitely fitting more of the the core needs um, of our of our members. So just to recap really quickly, there's sort of four steps here, and there's like you said, there's sort of. 50 different programs and, and routes to do this. But generally speaking, an employer needs to get authorization from the government by showing that they've tried to hire domestically and can't. Then the employee gets authorization on their end. So there's some, some hoops to jump through, some administrative stuff that they need to do on their end. There's you know their arrival, they get here, get them set up. Uh, and then there's like the longer term integration. So those are the, if we call it a four-step process, I know it's uh, more nuanced than that, but just for, for listeners who are hearing this for the first time, that's probably as deep as we need to go on that piece. I'm, I'm curious, um, Brooke, like what sorts of things might an employer be, be responsible for in bringing someone over for the first time? I actually don't know, like, are they paying for airfare? Do they need to set up housing? Do we get them a gym pass? Like, I, I have no idea what, what, if someone wanted to do this well, what kind mm -hmm. of stuff should they be ready to do to set up this, this worker for long-term success here? Yeah, absolutely. Just before we dive into that, I did want to mention as well that in terms of what the process looks like, because there are a number of different ways that an employer can um, bring a foreign worker to Canada, um, is that along with this podcast, we'll have a downloadable resource for your for your community, for listeners that sort of lays out in, in broader terms some of the different options because it can be a little bit, um, you know, you can get, get in the weeds there. So I just wanted to mention that that will be, um, we, we've created that for the podcast. That um, will be in the description, everyone. If you want to go to, like right within the podcast app, you can click on a link like we do in a lot of other episodes and get the stuff that Brooke is talking about. It'll be nicely titled and organized organized, super simple. But yeah, to, to, so from a legal perspective, um, to answer your question about what are the employer responsibilities? So first and foremost, um, as an employer using the temporary foreign worker program, um, you are required to abide by the, an employer compliance regime. And essentially what that says is that you have to be um, fulfilling the conditions of the, the contract that you signed when you applied to be authorized to hire the foreign worker. So providing, um, you know, working conditions, um, providing the employee with a, a, a role, the occupation that, that was set out in the job offer, providing wages that were um, in line with what you agreed to from the outset. So just making sure that you're following through on those commitments. That's a kind of a the, the major underpinning of the temporary foreign worker program. Mm -hmm. Now, um, depending on the region of Canada where you're, you're hiring and the wage of the worker, the, the wage that you're paying the worker, you may be required um, to provide housing or at least demonstrate that available and affordable housing is, um, can be sought. Mm -hmm. um, paying for airfare potentially uh, in British Columbia, for example, if you're paying below $25 an hour, you are required to pay airfare. Um, and it, so the, the requirements depend on where in Canada you're actually, the work location is. Um, and then 
also providing um, insurance until that person can get coverage from the um, the provincial health cover healthcare. Mm-hmm. So there's there are some there are some rules or sort of like some bare minimum requirements of what you mm-hmm. need to do as an employer, and that would change based on hourly wage. It would p- change yep. based on geography and the and sort of the 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 channel that you've decided to use. I'm again, we don't need to get into it in this podcast, but there's sort of like a, a bare minimum version of it. And then I'm sure there's also people that go above and beyond and probably do a little extra, which I I do actually want to ask you about in a, in a second here. Um, How long does this process take? I don't know if you can give us a, a range. Like just if someone was listening to this going, man, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good idea. They're gonna. They're, the first thing they're gonna go is like, "Can I get them next week?" Um, what's yeah. the, what's like a realistic time frame <sighs> to go through this process and have someone here ready to start? Um, yeah, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I would say taken all together, roughly six to eight months. When you factor in those first two steps of the process, is the employer getting authorized to hire the foreign worker, then the foreign worker getting authorized to actually work in Canada. If you take those together, I would say to account for at least six to eight months. So it is a longer term um, strategy. Um, is it common for people to, uh, is it common for the employers that you work with to bring people over um, in batches? Like, is it, is it one at a time? Do you sometimes, hey, I'm, you know what, I want to build a crew. Can I get, can I have, you know, can I find four individuals that are motivated to come over? Like, does, you know, can you do this at scale? You can, absolutely. So we work with um, organizations of all different sizes mm-hmm. and smaller ones might bring in one or they might bring in three or four people at the same time. Um, other organizations, like we're working with a, a quite a large organization right now that's bringing in 30. So wow. it is absolutely something that can be done on scale. How much might it cost? And I'm not obviously not talking about the wage that you pay them in perpetuity as they work for you, just like the what's the financial outlay? I don't know if you can give us a mm-hmm. range on that to actually get them here. Yeah. So if you were hiring one worker, I would budget around $5,000, including government fees um, and fees for professional services like ours, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the more people you're hiring at a time, the more expensive it's getting because the government charges you per individual that you're requesting permission to hire. Yep. Yep. Okay. But you know, roughly $5,000 yep. um, per individual that comes over. Okay, cool. Uh, there was something we touched on there a second ago. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I know our, our listeners quite well, you know, these are super driven, motivated, um, business owners, but they're also very values based. They're caring people, they're family people. Um, nobody that listens to our podcast, I think is, is looking at this from a transactional perspective. They, they want, they would want to do the right thing by this individual and by their business. And I'm wondering if you can just shed some light on what it looks like to support a foreign worker so that they successfully integrate into work into North American culture, into the more local community. I don't know if you have examples or stories or just what can you tell us about how to do this really, really well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think it's really important, right, to look beyond just the more transactional aspect of it, you know, completing the paperwork and getting the authorization from the government and looking at 
other aspects that will make this successful, right? Because if it's not successful, it's not only harming the individual that's coming to Canada, but then it's not benefiting your business. So making sure that, you know, there's attention paid to any cultural differences that can arise. Um, there's actually a really good resource that um, I'll send you the the link and it will be in the description for the podcast just around culture. And you can actually in this link choose two different countries. So Canada and wherever your um, the foreign worker might be coming from and compare the countries and the cultural differences based on six dimensions and it's really important, in my opinion, for employers to be doing this to understand, okay, well, what are the differences in culture and how might that play out on, you know, the, the work site so that it helps to mitigate frustrations. I, you know, I've talked to a number of employers in the past who are like, this person just doesn't do this or doesn't do that. And it, you know, when we look at it from a, well, because of our culture and, and how we've grown up and the expectations that we've learned, um, you know, we might have certain expectations that aren't shared be- simply because of cultural differences. So understanding on a, on a higher level, the culture, how cultures are similar or different um, it is a good starting point, I think, from for an employer who's looking to use immigration as a tool to grow their business. Um, And then, like we mentioned before, it's not always a requirement to provide housing or to um, pay for airfare or help with the the insurance coverage. But for someone that wants to this person really to succeed, you know, whether or not it's providing those things or at least helping the individual to understand how to get things set up, what types of things they might need. Um, So for example, when that person comes to Canada, help them out, where's the closest service Canada center so that they can go and get a SIN number, right? Um, Help them out with a, hey, here's the link for you to enroll in like in BC, the BC Medical Services Plan, Ontario, OHIP, right? Like how do I enroll in provincial health coverage? And there are government-funded settlement services and agencies across the country. So looking that up, seeing, um, you know, what kind of resources are available in your community so that you can point those out to the individual coming to work in your organization to help them get settled, maybe connect with other people um, who have immigrated to Canada um, and, and just showing you know, that you've, you've done your homework and you've made the effort that like demonstrating effort goes a long way. This is probably, I mean, I think we've implied this throughout the conversation, but this is a big deal. Like this is a big deal for this individual. They're coming from their home country to Canada for maybe for the first time, probably in a lot of cases for the first time, cultural differences, climate differences, uh, their you know English is uh, probably in many instances their their second language maybe their third language. Um, this is not a small undertaking, and I think I'm I'm glad I asked that question. I I love the response you gave, and I just would say to anyone listening to this who wants to look at this seriously, like don't be cavalier about this. This is a very big deal for your business. It's a very big deal for this individual. Um, if you want to do this well, there are resources, there are best practices, there are people like Brooke who live and breathe this and understand it on a deep level. This is not, this is not, oh, we're really busy. I need someone, you know, next week or I'm not, you know, like 
do not be, don't do this half cocked, take it very seriously, go through the necessary steps, go above and beyond. Um, it's just the right thing to do. Um, and I think too, on that point, Benji is when you look at it from it's, it is the right thing to do. It's also as the employer going through the processes that need to be done to hire someone from outside of Canada, to hire a foreign worker, it, it comes with a certain amount of input and, and resources and effort from the employer as yeah. well as, as the employee. So if you're looking at it from a return on investment, you want that person to be successful in their integration into Canadian culture, into your organization's culture and operation. Um, you know, and, and ideally if that, if it's a good fit, you want that person to stay as long as possible. So it goes beyond just even it's the right thing to do. I mean, it, it, it has a direct sense. impact on your business totally. and the return on investment you're getting from the effort you're putting into it. Totally. Totally. Um, I, I love that point. Can you give us a, a sense? Like, I, I know you work with, you've worked with quite a few contractors. You've worked with quite a few trades businesses, uh, construction businesses. What countries have ha- are there people coming from? Like, do you, do you have examples? Can you say it's you know a lot of people from from you know this continent or this country? Like, where have you guys seen success with these programs in the past? Where are these where are these individuals coming from? Yeah, so we've seen a lot of, um, so I'll say that each of our employers that we're working with, they kind of niche almost in where they're hiring foreign workers from. Um, So we work with a large construction company that most of their foreign workers, they recruit from Ghana. And that's just through networks that they've built. Um, Also the UK, Portugal, Mexico, those are other really big ones, Um, some from Czech Republic. What we often see is that a particular employer has this pipeline that they've developed from a a, a particular country, right? right? So we see one employer heavily recruiting and hiring from one country, another employer heavily recruiting and hiring from another country. It's, I mean, that's that's basic networking. The good people that they've brought over probably know good people that are still back exactly. home. And so that's how that pipeline develops. It would if you have if you've gotten three, you know, really amazing employees from Portugal, to use your example, it wouldn't make business sense to go try in Russia and go through the whole process there with a new culture, different languages like, you know, do, stick with what works is essentially what you're yeah. saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Um, really good point. Um one question I, I, I meant to ask earlier is, is what level of English would these individuals have when they come over? Are, are they fluent? Do they have a basic understanding? Is this measured? Is it measured? Is it tested? Like, how does the, the language barrier thing work? Yeah. So um, when we just kind of backtracking on the four main steps of the process, first, the employer getting authorization to hire a foreign worker, then that worker getting authorization to work in Canada. At that level, or at the, in those stages, it's not um, actually. There's not a language test that one that the foreign worker needs to do. There's not a minimum. This person has to have this benchmark of English. Um, but what we know from experience is that the individual has to have a strong enough command of the English language that they wouldn't be a danger on the work site. So when the government of Canada is assessing the work permit, 
um, they may either call the person, and this doesn't happen in every case, but if they do, they might call the person, they might bring them in for an in-person interview, or if it's someone applying for their work permit on arrival in Canada at the airport when they're assessing the application, the, the government employee officer is making an assessment of whether or not it's pretty subjective, whether or not they believe this person's English is strong enough that they can actually fulfill the job that they've come to do in Canada and that they're not going to be a danger, um, especially. And that's particularly true um, for trades, just given the nature of the work. So, but then when you're looking at longer term objectives, so if, if, you know, the, the person you want to hire is saying, Hey, yeah, I want to come, I'll come and work with your organization. I also, you know, want to make it known that I want to stay in Canada long term. Is that something you'll support me with? Then when you look at that fourth step that we talked about, helping that person transition from temporary worker to permanent resident of Canada, that permanent residency process is where um, there are minimum language benchmark requirements. So that's something to consider and potentially even address like in the first stage to make sure that if you get through stages one, two, and three, you don't get to stage four and realize, oh, we've hit a roadblock based on language. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like going back to the question before, if, if you were interested in doing this the absolute best way possible, supporting this individual as well as you could is uh, to say nothing of like how this makes your business better. It probably would be smart to um, look for people that already have a pretty solid baseline English or if they or if they don't there's some plan in place to get them caught up whether that's through the people they work with on your team a tutor outside I don't know what that would look like but this is this uh, there's many factors in this the language piece is one that needs to be considered I'm, I'm sure on a case-by-case basis mm-hmm. um, so wanted to just get like I, I love pros and cons lists um, what are the benefits what are the challenges? Start with benefits. Like what are the really, really awesome things about this route? Speak from experience or other clients you've had that have done this well. And then maybe tell us about some of the pitfalls, some of the some of the obstacles that, that business owners need to be aware of as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, benefits, I think a real obvious one is filling employee and staffing shortages you're you're having in your business um first and foremost second of all the diversity that that people bring the the different ideas and the innovation that's possible when you have a a culturally diverse team Mm. um it is incredible right like just different ways of thinking different ways of of doing something um all contributes to your business's success and growth. Um, so, so those are, are huge benefits. Um, you also, when you go through this process and if you do it, um, you know, Benji, as you said, following those best practices, um, and not looking at this as a transactional event, then you have somebody that is committed and dedicated to your organization that is likely going to stay longer term. So, you know, that's benefiting your, your organization. Mm -hmm. You're getting a higher ROI on investing in immigration as a a recruitment and a retention tool. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's helping your business. I mean, if, if you think about the impacts and, and how your, your business is impacted from a revenue perspective, when you're constantly having to 
rehire because people are coming and going. It's just a revolving door. Having these committed longer, excuse me, longer term employees has a direct impact on your bottom line, right? And, and, and the quality of the, the service and product you're able to provide. Um, so, so those are some of the key benefits of using immigration and not just using immigration programs, but using them in the right way. Um, and then in terms of some of the pitfalls um, or challenges, recruitment, especially for an organization maybe that's never hired a foreign worker before, um, can be a challenge. Yeah. You know, just you asked me in some of our pre-sessions, you know, where do people find workers to hire? Yeah. Um, that definitely can be a challenge. But, you know, some of the places um, that, that you can look, like we said before, the networks, current staff, um, look at what, what others in the industry are doing and where, you know, like where are they finding workers? Um you can also use third-party recruiters. We're currently in the process, like we're immigration specialists. We specialize in completing the, like navigating the process of getting all the authorizations that need to be had. Um, but obviously we work and, and can work quite closely with recruiters. So we're building up those um, relationships. So um, right now we're specifically working on one um, with culinary and trade. So you know, you could reach out to us, um, employment councils, look on job bank or post your ad on job bank, which is a requirement if you want to go through the process anyway, because there are a lot of people from overseas who, who look for jobs in Canada on, on job bank, um, immigrant and settlement services and, um, trade schools as well Mm -hmm. to see, right. They, there may be international students at trade schools but also domestic students. So yeah, best of both worlds. What would be some, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't need to name names or companies or any individuals, but could you, do you have some success stories? I know you've been doing this for a while. You've worked with, you've had many, many, many clients go through this process. Can you shed some light or give us a story about someone or a few people for whom this has been good for the company, good for the individual or the group of individuals that came over and, and good for the community as a whole. Like what, what's an, what's an exemplary case? Yeah, well, we, we have employers that we've worked with for 10 years or more who use immigration, um, as a tool to help grow their business, um, and are also committed to supporting the employer employees. So these employers are going the, the extra step to help find housing or provide housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and by provide housing, I'm not saying they get it for free, but have a com- organize it, right? Mm-hmm. Have the house available and rent it out um, as opposed to the individual having to reach out to landlords directly and not really know what it's like in Canada uh, or I know you have listeners in the U.S. too, not really know what to expect in terms of like securing housing, do that work for them, yeah. right? If your organization's big enough and you have an HR team, even if you don't, um, you know, pull that together. And and so we have companies that we've worked with that do that, um, kind of make sure, say, hey, we've got housing set up for you, um, organize that language training. Uh, and I think, 
some of the, the greatest success we see is from employers that recognize that this is not, for most workers coming to Canada, this isn't a short-term play, it's a long-term play. So recognizing and understanding, like seeking to understand the the long-term goals and objectives and dreams of the individual that you're hiring mm-hmm. and doing what you can as an employer to support them. So that's why when I described, you know, what does the process look like? That fourth, that fourth step is helping that person transition to permanent residence because we know that in overwhelming numbers, that's the ultimate objective of people coming and working in Canada. Yeah. Um, it's not a mandatory step. Just to be clear, it's not mandatory that you support that person in that transition. But when we see the where we see the most success is employers that know um, or that that seek out from the the person they're hiring. Yeah. Hey, this is your goal. Okay, let me see what I can do to support you in that. Right? Because it's a two way street. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and um, all of the. I mean, we talk about this stuff. Sort of this this really you know, high performance leadership type stuff on other episodes, building a career path for the people that work for you, understanding their personal and professional goals. Some people are involved with, you know, um, like, like, like coaching and, and developing, uh, some, some employees are, are involved with like health goals and family goals. Like when, when, when you this is no different than how you would treat any other employee within your business if you wanted to develop them as a team member um, and as and as a person within the community. So all of the stuff that we talk about in other episodes still applies. There's a couple other barriers, a couple other obstacles that make this a unique challenge, but this is all the same stuff. You want a kick-ass, rock-star, long-term employee to take the load off of you and, and grow your business. This is one of a few tools. And I'll, I'll say this too, you know, this conversation is one of a few things you ought to be doing as, as a business owner. We've, you know, we've had this, uh, we just did this big, long, uh, six part, like recruiting and hiring series, like still do all of that stuff. You should still be trying to, you know, hire domestically as well, but this is one thing to add to the tool belt. Um, uh, really, really love this conversation. I really, really appreciate the insight you've shared here, uh, Brooke. And um, it's it's one I'm passionate about. And, and I think this is the way, as you said at the beginning, this is the way all this stuff is going anyway. Get an early start. <laughs> um, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do, Brooke? Uh, on our website, so whistlerimmigration.com. Uh, and you can also follow us on socials, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and, and reach us that way. Cool. Um, really appreciate you doing this with us. Uh, I hope you'll come back at some point in the future and, and we can talk about more stuff. Sounds great. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks a lot for having me. We are giving you the chance to win a full vehicle wrap from our friends over at Graphic Impressions. The lowest hanging fruit when it comes to building your brand is a simple vehicle wrap. If you talk to any entrepreneur with a wrapped fleet of vehicles, they'll tell you it's a significant source of leads for their business. And we wanna give you a chance to win a vehicle wrap for free. 
To enter, all you need to do is hit subscribe over on our YouTube channel, which is Breakthrough Academy. It's literally that simple. Plus, you'll stay up to date with all the best contractor evolution content, which will be delivered right to your feed every week. On April 30th, the winner will be randomly selected from our new subscribers and will receive a vehicle wrap on us. So what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button below. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.